African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us once again here on Channel Africa, where you get stories from an African perspective. You're with me, Benjamin Mushata right here on African Dialogue, where we look at the big stories on the African continent. Not big stories, definitely the very important conversations on the African continent. You're listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa on DSTV on channel 802 on the audio bouquet. You can also stream us live on W www.channelafrica.co.za Well, today we're going to be looking at a very, very important uh, issue, which is energy and electricity supply on the African continent. According to an Oxfam report, Sub-Saharan Africa, which is home to approximately 950 million people, is the most uh, electricity poor region. More than 600 million people lack access to electricity, and millions more are connected to an unreliable grid that does not meet their daily energy service needs. Most countries in Uh, the African continent have electricity access rates of about 20% and two out of three uh, people lack access to modern energy services. Now, the African Utility Week, which is a gathering which is taking place in Cape Town starting on Tuesday, ending tomorrow, is bringing together over 7,000 decision makers to source the latest solutions and meet over uh, 300 suppliers. It also focuses on all aspects of the provision of energy Energy services to the African market. Joining us on the line, we've got Dom Wales, who is the CEO of Solar Future Energy, and also we have Romaine Pie, who is the investment director and head of transactions at African Infrastructure uh, Investment. Uh, he's a manager there. Uh, let's start with you, uh, Dom, in terms of looking at uh, uh, the space that Africa finds itself. I know that when you look at countries like South Africa, they're trying to diversify uh, their energy sources, know that there is a big project that has already been confirmed by South Africa's Minister of Energy of focusing on solar energy. As uh, an organization, a solar future energy, we've already started looking at uh, uh, the resource lack of energy on the African continent. What have you identified as the key energy needs in Africa and sub-Saharan Africa in specific? Yes, Benjamin, thank you for having me on your show. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting topic, and it's it's one that's going to be spanning probably the next 20 to 30 years because um, Africa's energy needs are, are not um, going to be um, sort of uh, quenched like in the next sort of, um, you know, in the short term. It's going to take years to do it. And what's, what's very exciting is that there's technology emerging now that is going to be and it's actually perfectly suited to what exactly what Africa needs. And what Africa needs is a safe, reliable, and, and cheap energy. Um, and in the past, one of the major reasons for Africa not being heavily electrified is because such a big continent and the, 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 the urban centers are so far away from each other that to construct massive power lines was just a very expensive process and then one the government couldn't afford given the low um, energy use. 
And so what's, what's happened in the telecoms industry is that um, we've actually leapfrogged that entirely and, and, and gone straight to cell phones, for example, which is a totally decentralized uh, network. And much the same way as that's happened, we can see the electricity network do the same thing. And there have been enormous uh, drops in the, in the cost of, of solar, wind, and batteries over the last five years. And all indications show that with the increasing scale, that will continue to happen. And so what Africa is going gonna, is gonna to um, have access to is a completely decentralized electricity network that contains solar and wind microgrids spread all over the continent, uh, providing um, energy that is cheap enough so that um, commerce and industry can compete on the world scale um, by producing products um, with a very low cost of energy. Mm. Let me bring it to you, uh, Romain, in terms of what is highlighted there by uh, Dom, in terms of looking at some of the challenges, speaking about geographic challenges that sub-Saharan Africa has in terms of uh, electrifying the region. Um, If you're referring to this Oxfam report that I highlighted, it says that more than 600 million people lack access to electricity. What other contributing factors do we have in terms of the these challenges of making sure that the continent is electrified and is getting adequate energy. Um, good morning, and, and thank you for having me on, on the show. Um, I will be maybe a bit more nuanced um, than Dominic, um, and I think you know the, the continent is not a, a single entity. Uh, and what we're saying is two different things. In one hand, we've Sorry. got growing urbanisation in big city centres. And on the other end, we got um, um, a big part of the continent where the population density is very low. And I think people need to be more technology agnostic and try to fit the solution to what the needs are required. Uh, what we're seeing is, uh, is being said, two things. One, we've seen um, a kind of green revolution where we are seeing currently renewable solar and wind being at cost or below cost compared to other thermal uh, power generation. So that's the first one. And we are seeing also on the other side um, a shift from grid power to off-grid, and what we call sometimes distributed power. Now, I think that we'll cohabit together and uh, and coexist together on the continent. You know, for big big cities, and some of them will go in excess of 10 million habitants, it's not realistic just to... um, um, in terms of the infrastructure required to put a lot of renewable um, generation capacity. So we'll see on those maybe gas to power, um, but still quite clean energy, um, uh, providing the, the, the electricity which is required for industrialization, but also to, to get a, a, a proper functioning services industry. And on, on more on the rural areas, what we are saying is what, you know, solar home systems, really the, the kind of off-grid market which is kicking off. And we think, for example, in Kenya, which has passed the, uh, the million customers were last year. So the, the, the scale of the upgrade is definitely um, to play. Mm. Very interesting indeed in terms of that. Staying with you, Romain, is 
I want to know from you in terms of uh, the very much uh, wariness of the continent moving into nuclear energy. It seems like a conversation that's also been silenced in South Africa where there was a push during the presidency of our uh, previous uh, president, Jacob Zuma, uh, whereby he was emphasizing the need for nuclear energy and then that was actually uh, sidelined due to uh, the political shifts that we've seen in the last year or so. Uh, there seems to be a reluctance on nuclear on the African continent. How come? Um, I mean, I think there is two. I mean, the nuclear on a global basis, you know, I think is decreasing everywhere. So none of the big countries are really adding as a, as, a, as a percentage of power generation really nuclear. What we've seen is definitely uh, renewables been added much faster than nuclear in, in most of the market, in, in nearly every market. So if you look from 2000 to 2016, wind power added 11 times more than nuclear added capacity and seven times for solar PV on a global basis. So, the, you know, we've seen in the UK the nuclear program in France um, eating the, buffer, the buffers. So I think nuclear is being challenged. And um, I think, you know, challenged by the, the security issues, but also by the cost of decommissioning, which have never been fully factored in. So I'm not surprised when, you know, in most of the continent, the power infrastructure is already kind of not well-maintained and not necessarily working to its full capacity. I think nuclear may just be a step which is way too expensive and not not necessary for the continent. So I'm Mm. not sure, you know, if you look Brazil, India, all the others have moved away from nuclear, so why would you move the other way? Mm. Let me bring in Deb... Who's sure. No. Go fund, ahead. Who's going to fund it? Mm. You know, I think the most challenging sure. today is all you're going mm. to fund mm. the nuclear program. Well, let me bring in Adele Malia Banerjee, who is the Regional Director of Indian Chamber of uh, Commerce, who's joining us on the line there. Uh, Adele Malia, thank you for giving us your time and a good example for you to actually come in because that example that was made by Romain Pai actually relates to energy sources and India moving away from uh, also nuclear. In terms of the composition of, uh, nu- of, of electricity, sources that India relies on. Where is the country moving? And I know that uh, partnerships are also being mended between India and, and, and countries such as South Africa and uh, uh, it seems like the partnerships are also interesting in terms of the trends that uh, developing countries are moving into. Just give us a backdrop of what's happening in India. See, uh, as a country, uh, last two weeks back we have achieved 100% power availability to all the villages. So it is a commendable step and it's a commendable uh, milestone which as a nation we have reached. And uh, as a nation, uh, we are power surplus in certain geographies. We supply to our neighboring countries. So from the manufacturing point of view, our uh, have been manufacturing a lot of uh, things uh, which is related to the power sector, specifically in the solar sector, solar panels, etc. As a country, we have little more than 200 uh, solar manufacturing, panel manufacturing companies. So, uh, you know, uh, we are certainly in line with our commitment at the Paris Convention. We are trying to move towards the zero fossil fuel kind of a situation and, uh, you know, we are relying heavily on alternate sources of energy with key focus on solar sector. 
and uh, in fact we are also a member of international solar association as a nation uh, in this particular african utility week where i am here as a you know deputy leader of the indian delegation uh, you know a number of solar companies have also come and the interest is to you know move uh, do business with south africa that's that's one point but as a country uh, we are very robust in terms of the power sector well, I'm going to take a quick break and we'll explore some of those uh, trends uh, that we are seeing in uh, the energy space. And uh, if you're listening to us, we're crossing live into Cape Town at the Africa Utility Week, which is ending tomorrow, I've been told. And a huge gathering in terms of looking at how we can improve the accessibility of electricity in the African space. How do we make sure that we also modernize the energy services on the continent? We'll deal with these questions after this break. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunyenzovu and you are listening to Channel Africa. We love Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Well, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, where we're looking at things from an African perspective. Right in uh, the conversation that you're in today, we're looking at Africa Utility Week, which is currently underway in Cape Town. We're joined on the line by Dominique Wales, who is the CEO of Solar Future Energy, Roman Pai, who is the Investment Director and Head of Transactions at African uh, Infrastructure Investment. And also we've got uh, on the line Delma. Malia Abinarjia, who is the Regional Director of Indian Chamber of Commerce, also at this gathering. Let me come back to you, Dominic, in terms of uh, this move that we're starting to see into renewable forms of energy. Why is that a prerequisite now that we're starting to see that becoming more dominant uh, from an international perspective? We heard uh, uh, Del uh, Malia highlighting the fact that uh, that's where India is going in terms of uh, creating a space where uh, solar energy is more emphasized in his country. Why are we seeing that uh, particular move? I think broadly um, there's three reasons for this. Um, The first reason, and it's it's an obvious reason, is that we are actually running out of of finite resources. We we don't have coal to go forever. Um, In South Africa, we look like we've got coal until about 2050, 2060. Um, and it's when you start to reach the end of the reserves that the, the costs start to fluctuate quite a lot as well. Um, and um, same with oil and gas and, and nuclear, they're all finite resources. So on some level, the world always has to move across to something that's going to be sustainable and something that we can use forever. Um, the second reason, I think, is because of the manufacturing scale that's, that started to happen over the last 10 years in particular, we've actually started to see a real cost competitiveness. So... In the past, you had to sacrifice you know, sustainability and cost. You had to kind of weigh them up against each other. Um, that's no longer... You, you can have the lowest cost of energy in a sustainable format. Um, and I think the, the third thing, and it's, it's combined with, with a new wave of, of storage which is coming through, 
is that flexible generation is becoming increasingly important. I think the, the old idea that you could just build one baseload power plant now and then just use it for 50 years is, is a very difficult model to follow because it's enormously difficult to predict what your energy usage is going to be in the next 10 to 20 years' time. It's even difficult to predict what it's going to be like in five years' time. We've seen that over the last seven years um, in our own integrated resource plan, which over the last seven years since it's, uh, it's promulgated, it's been completely wrong, and that's a short period of time. So flexible generation, storage, cost, and the fact that you're addressing um, the, the, the finiteness, essentially, of, of, of the fossil fuel industry, those reasons all add up to the fact that, that, that renewables is, is, is gaining such a huge uh, portion of the market share. Mm. Coming back to you, Romaine, in terms of, uh, you know, energy mixes becoming also another approach whereby it's not just about uh, uh, utilizing one source of energy, but also multiplying the energy sources. How also is that strategy? I know um, when you look at some African countries, they're seeing that as a more of a viability because also they're trying to also increase their industrialization where a lot of uh, energy is required, especially in the major cities on the African continent? You know, just, um, you know, it's, it's quite interesting. Sometimes I was listening and everyone, especially Dominique, you know, took renewables, but um, I've not heard the word hydropower, for example, sure. which is one of the uh, big existing hydro and, and base load kind of generation. I think that's one thing, you know, some of the region um, may have different needs and may have different resources that they should exploit. So if you look at Central Africa, for example, uh, is abundant in terms of uh, the hydrological resources, and that's what they need to be, um, in, in a way, exploited. The same way that, for example, East Africa around the Rift Valley is having geothermal resources which could be exploited. And, and I think when we talk on the mix, we shouldn't try to copy... Um, um, necessarily what, what, what's happening just a cut and paste. The, the needs of, of the nation do, you know, as Dominique said, quite diverge and sometimes mm-hmm. um, are very different over time. And, uh, you know, the South Africa is um, one of the big consum- consumers of power has been the mining industry. Um, other countries may not be uh, necessarily as, uh, as dependent on, on mineral resources and may not necessarily require the same amount of power per inhabitant. And I think that's where you, you need to try to, to understand what the pattern of your consumption and what's also the evolution. So, for example, you know, we think Nigeria, a very populated country, and we closed out of last year um, a platform which we call a commercial industrial uh, solar PV. But they are they're combining, so putting solar PV on top of the rooftop for uh, banks or petrol stations, we're combining that with taking over the actual diesel gen set, uh, that they, they have put in place, but also with efficiency saving. So what does it mean? Um, updating the lighting, updating the aircon to reduce the, um, uh, the, just the energy needs. And I think that sometimes, and I think that, that's what Dominic was saying, I think too often we've seen people looking purely at the generation, by putting more, you know, more supply on the system, rather than trying to regulate and to optimize the demand. You know, and if you can reduce the consumption by 10 or 15 percent by being more efficient, maybe that's a, a more efficient way to tackle it. Well, that's very interesting in terms of actually the fact that you're highlighting there, Romain, that each country is actually tailor-making its own uh, uh, energy requirements. And uh, 
the, the problem as well, sticking with you, Romain, is the fact that, especially when it comes to large projects uh, such as hydroelectricity projects in sub-Saharan Africa, they're taking so long to actually pick off. Um, we've had so many concepts and ideas of how we can actually uh, rely on hydroelectricity, but it seems like investment is where we're struggling to get a proper uh, way forward in terms of making sure that these projects take Take off, and that seems to be the major challenge. I disagree with the statement. I think you know a lot of projects are badly planned, are badly designed, are coming from an idea which was born in 1960 or 70, which are not uh, you know valid anymore in the current time. If you look the you know you know what um, the, the reap in South Africa has been very successful. That there's been a very successful program in Uganda called the GetFit, and within the GetFit, which I believe are in excess of 15 projects, 12 of those are small run-of-river hydros. So deepen what you are trying to build. And the program has been very effective in deploying a lot of capacity within a, a, a quite a short amount of time. So I think it's all come back to, do you have dynamic master planning? Yes. Okay, good step. Do you have the institutional capacity to move to something which, where people can deliver what the plan is there? And then do you have, do you have transparent, structured procurement and process? And if you have all these these you see a very efficient way. Look, Côte d'Ivoire, successful. They they built on Azito and Tiprel, which have been uh, built at the end of the 90s. Mm. They added every time a little phase, 100, 150 megawatts. Now they've added some hydro. I think these countries which look at, you know, trying to follow with what our grandmother was saying, do not put all the eggs in the same basket. So they they put gas, they they put hydro, they're looking a bit of solar, these diversification, and they've been able to, to export, like India, powers to the um, neighboring countries. So I think it's when you're structured about it, then you don't, it has been a very efficient to add the extra capacity. I think too often people are going for the big bang. They have not done what we call an independent producer, power producer project. Okay. And suddenly they want to build one gigawatt in one go. And maybe it's too big as a step. Mm. Let me move to you, um, Dabmalia, in terms of your thoughts. In terms of implementing these particular um, projects, I know that uh, when, it, when it comes to the issue of um, energy itself, we're starting to see it actually move into a micro level whereby we're seeing various uh, small, medium projects whereby are providing solar energy services. And I'm not sure if that's the trend in um, um, India, but I know that's the approach that South Africa wants to take. Doesn't that take away uh, the power of control of energy away from uh, uh, the municipalities and, and local governance? Uh, see, um, uh, in fact, India is a large country, quite diverse. So, uh, you know, obviously to cover the length and breadth of country, uh, we need many micro projects also, which will supply power on the local basis. So uh, this is something uh, which is important. And as a country, that is the reason we encourage a lot of local investments and local power projects. And obviously, solar projects is catching up very fast at the local level. Even wind energy is catching up very fast on certain pockets of the country where there are topographical reasons which allow such kind of uh, activities to sustain. And how do you control, Adelb Meyer, uh, the issues of pricing as well? Because uh, the more you privatize energy sources, sometimes there can be an issue of not controlling or not being able to regulate the pricing thereof. 
No, because you know, as a country, our governance standards are quite high, and even if the private sector is operating, the overall rules, regulations which governs the private sector is robust, and uh, they cannot actually take the citizens for a fling. It it may be noted that India is the biggest democracy of the world, where the citizens have absolute power to do uh, to dictate the government, to dictate the rules, regulations. So, uh, you know, uh, we, we have RTIs, we have human rights. So, citizens and the users can never be taken uh, for uh, ride by the private sector in colluding with government. Such kind of obnoxious things doesn't happen in our country because it's a democracy. And in democracy, citizens have a say. And, uh, you know, such kind of uh, things will not happen. In fact, you know, Indian private sector is compliant, large, robust, and they have to necessarily adhere to the rules, regulations, which are broad-based, macro-economic, uh, macro-indicating in nature, uh, if they have to do their business and if they have to sustain their. Colluding with forces and fleeing uh, the common citizens is something it doesn't happen in our country. Mm. What are your thoughts, uh, Dominic? Now, let me bring it back to you in terms of that move. And there have been some concerns from lobby groups in South Africa, the fact that we're going into a more uh, a renewable energy form of uh, approach when it comes to our electrification projects. There have been kind of questions around whether people will lose their jobs from their main source of um, electricity in South Africa, which is definitely ESCOM, and a lot of people that will see shedding of jobs there, and uh, we'll also see uh, the government not being able to really control the pricing issue as well of electricity because we're privatizing energy sources. Um, yeah, look, I think, you know, right at the beginning I mentioned that this is kind of a disruptive sector at the moment. It's going to take about 20 years. It's going to take about a generation. And sure, the, the jobs that, that exist currently in, in the coal-rich areas, um, there are going to be less of those in the next 20, 30 years. We've got to recognize that. Uh, but in the same token, there's going to be more jobs available in other parts of the country um, where, where more renewable um, resources exist. And so we need to manage that transition um, from an employment perspective um, and, and slowly manage that transition as well, being sensitive to the communities. I mean, it's not like Mpumalanga is not going to have any renewable um, sources, and those coal um, plants, some of them will still be around for the next 20, 30 years as well. But as they start to shut down, they need to manage the process of, of, of moving employment from one sector in energy to another sector within energy. Um, the second thing is, on the pricing, um, the pricing ultimately on the grid within ESCOM is, is a tightly controlled process that always takes the cheapest source of, of energy. So even within ESCOM's own network, they know what the cheapest um, power that they've got is, and they use that before they use any other energy. And if the whole privatization happens, what, what the, the big goal is really is to, um, is to spin out the grid, the management of the grid, and... The, essentially the pricing of power to spin that into its own entity and then all the, all the people that are, are, are got access to the grid on a generation perspective, that's managed separately. So all the coal plants, all the renewable plants, everybody sells into one common power pool which is managed independently. And this is what, um, this is what the ISMO bill has been all about and this is what um, government is currently looking at in terms of trying to get ESCOM profitable again because 
What's actually happening is that their grid is actually managed quite well, um, but some of the generation assets are, are not profitable. Mm-hmm. And that's how you manage the price. You, you create a completely, um, you create a marketplace for selling energy, and there's a spot price for the energy, and you can sell energy into the grid at any point, provided that you, that you meet the spot price. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's, that's the way Australia works. Many countries around the world, uh, around the world have the mm-hmm. same, um, and that's the only way to be absolutely um, competitive all the time because I think the biggest criticism of renewables is being that um, the government has signed these renewables deals and then once they've given you a price, that price is locked for the next 20 years at a, at a fixed escalation. So in year 15, there's nothing they can do about that price. They've agreed to it already. Whereas if you create this power pool um, type of scenario, then everybody has to generate energy at the least cost that's possible to go into the grid. And that's very good for the consumers of South Africa, and and um, and that's what we believe that the future needs to be. Well, I'm going to take a quick break. I'll get your sentiments, Romain, on what you think about this issue of uh, uh, costing and also privatizing, and uh, also when you look at uh, the. Um, coal power plants in countries such as South Africa. They create a lot of employment in South Africa. So there's been a lot of worries around the shedding of those jobs and the fact that renewable uh, sources of uh, um, electricity won't actually supply as many jobs as we've seen in the more mainstream ways. But we'll deal with those uh, questions after this break. If you're interested in a real-life story of friendship, then join Channel Africa for a book reading of 65 Years of Friendship, written by George Bezos about his relationship with African icon Nelson Mandela. From Monday to Thursday at 2200 Central African Time and during the weekend on Saturday and Sunday at 800 hours Central African Time. Join us for 65 Years of Friendship, a real-life drama. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Well, thank you for joining us here on Channel Africa. Uh, Today we are looking at the Africa Utility Week, which is underway in uh, Cape Town, which is focusing on all aspects of the provision of energy services in the African market. If you're just joining us, we've been speaking to Dominic Wills, who is the CEO of the Solar Energy, Solar Future Energy, rather, Romain Pai, who's the the Investment Director and Head of Transactions at Infra, African, rather, African Infrastructure Investment. Investment manager. Well, Romain, what are your thoughts on where we are with this conversation as we're about to wrap it up? Do you agree with both uh, uh, Delt Meyer and Dominique, especially when it comes to this privatization of uh, electricity? Uh, some people say it's a big concern and it seems like it's a catch 22 situation, especially for developing African countries. Um, I mean, I agree with um, Dominique. And, and uh, the thing, I, I, in a way, I don't understand the question because if I look at my data, my data is showing me that renewable energy in South Africa is 20 to 30% cheaper than current coal generation. So um, I'm not sure, you know, you know, in every African country, we've not seen one single project, and we have currently in excess of 
2,200 megawatts, either in, co- in operation or in construction, across a number of countries. None of these projects had a cost of generation which was higher than the average of, of, the, of, the, country, of the country in question. And most of the time, it was at significant discount, 30 to 40 percent cheaper. So I, I don't think, you know, what the private sector also show is the ability to deliver within cost and within a certain time frame. And that is also adding value. We don't see the cost escalation and some of the publicly procured projects have led to or, you know, some stranded assets which have been built and not functioning. Now, so from a cost standpoint, every project which is built is, is reducing the cost of the system. That's just has been evident everywhere. Now, you, you, you mentioned some concerns about employment. And, you know, I mean, I, I look, I, I'm, you know, I'm not South African, but when I look what the uh, South African Renewable Energy Program has done is really one of its unique features has been the promotion of the social and economic benefits. And, you know, if you look based on DOE data, what from one to four is supposed to generate in terms of employment, we are, we're talking in excess of 100,000 new jobs. So I think, you know, that needs also to be into perspective. You are, you're building assets, you're operating assets, this is coming, this is transferring skill set to the economy. So this is also flowing through. And I think it's, it's always difficult to, uh, to, you know, maybe a, a more detailed comparison should be done in terms of the, um, is it better to, um, you know, what's the true value creation or the net value creation between what is added and what is withdrawn from the system. Well, we're going to wrap it up there. I have to let you guys go, but thank you for giving us your time and I hope you will continue to enjoy what's happening there at the African Utility Week. Thank you to Dom Wills, who's the CEO of the Solar Future Energy, from Empire, who is the Investment Director and Head of Transactions at African Infrastructure Investment Manager. And earlier on, we also had Debmalia uh, Banerjee, who is the Regional Director of Indian Chamber of Commerce. So, well, that's how we wrap up this uh, conversation what are your thoughts keep interacting with us on our various platforms on our twitter handle at channel africa one the numeric one or you can go to at african dialogue and you can also uh, join us on our channel africa facebook page simply titled channel africa let's have some music this is Nina. this one is titled bantubagiti africa's history has always been written in blood and tears even if mountains were pooks and all rivers were in, none amongst us could write and depict the pain. And ugly.
Well, that's Joni uh, titled Bantu Bagiti. Takes us to 11.45 Central African time. Let's get our uh, business news from Musani Matibula.